Welcome to the St. Rita's Family Medicine Podcast. This is Mark Colley. Today's topic will focus on physician burnout. To discuss this with me, I have someone who's backed by popular demand. He is Dr. Herb Schum. Dr. Schum is the Medical Director of Education and Physician Development for Bon Secours Mercy Health. Dr. Schum, thank you for doing this again. Thanks, Mark. Right. It's an honor to be back this year. So I wanted to I wanted to talk to you uh, for two main reasons uh, again. Um, the first one was we had done our podcast this past spring, the first one on uh, burnout. And then you had recommended I talk with Dr. Smith, a general surgeon out of Youngstown who has a powerful burnout story uh, after that. And when I released those two podcasts, there was a pretty tremendous response from uh, the physicians who had listened to it. So that speaks to me that this is a topic that people want to talk about. They want to hear conversations about. But the other reason why I wanted to come back and speak with you was that discussion we had this past spring is what led me to seek treatment for burnout. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I'm coming at this with a different perspective and hope that allows us to expand our conversation as well. So piggybacking on that, when I listened to our last discussion, I feel like I didn't give you enough time to speak on how burnout not only just affects the, or affects the physician, but also affects those people around them and the patient. So what can you tell us about that aspect of burnout? You know, Mark, well, first of all, I give you kudos for getting help yourself. That's one of the core mm -hmm. reasons that we do this is so people step out and take care of themselves. When we look at burnout, it really has a watershed effect on everybody around you, uh, your family, your care team, and your patients. As a matter of fact, Shana Feltz done research where he found that uh, if we look at the burnout index of a care team, it directly relates to the mortality of their ICU patients. So we know it relates to patient care directly. Interestingly, we don't have good evidence yet of the impact that it has directly on patient experience, although given that depersonalization is a key element of it, it's got to have an effect on patients. But we also know it does affect the care team. As a matter of fact, leadership behaviors are essential to preventing burnout. And many of our physicians and APCs will say, but Herb, I'm not a leader. I, I don't have a title. But you are a leader. You're a leader in the care team that you direct. It's your office, if it's in the OR, if it's in the uh, cath lab, you're leading a team. And what we've learned is that if we can raise your leadership ability in that team, if we can make you healthier in that team, we can raise the job satisfaction and decrease the burnout rate of the people on the team. And they identified four key behaviors. One is that you keep the team informed. Two, that you ask their suggestions. Three, help them with their career development. And then the fourth one is recognize a job well done. Well, when we look at these, these go back exactly like, you know, we talked about PCMH in the huddle. It covers every single one of those, even though at that time we didn't think of it as reducing burnout in the care team. It absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I can speak to my own burnout journey in that one of the key things that my coach focuses with me on is how are you communicating to your team? Are you know, how's your team helping mm -hmm. you? Are you helping your team? And from where I was before I sought treatment to afterwards, I can say there's a big difference there and my team is noticing that as well. And they're commenting back to me and to my uh, practice manager about that. So I can see a big difference just from communicating better and doing those little things uh, rather than feeling like you have to go at it all alone. Um, 
I wanted to focus the bulk of our discussion uh, about what you had presented at the Toledo Interdisciplinary Primary Care Conference back in September. And I know Dr. Ike sometimes listens to these, and I want to give a shout out to him and his team in Toledo who put on an excellent conference, and I'd highly recommend that to anybody who uh, would want to go and earn some CMEs if they do that again this uh, coming fall. So your presentation was focused on the results of the 2018 Mercy Physician Engagement Survey. So what did that survey tell us about our organization and burnout? You know, a couple of interesting things, Mark, and, and I pulled out that presentation in preparation for this. Medscape in 2018 nationally said the burnout rate was 46%. We, we tested that in Mercy a couple of ways. One was uh, participate in the OHA's uh, tool using the AMA Mini Z tool and what we found is Ohio as a state was at 51, I'm sorry, 57%, but Mercy was actually at 64%. Mm-hmm. Particular primary care was hit hardest with that. Our engagement survey that year in 2018 actually showed we were at 51%. Now, uh, also Bon Secours in 2017, prior to merger, they used a modified tool that was uh, took into account some of the Maslock indicators and actually found that on two of the three metrics, they were higher than national average in burnout. So it made me step back and say, first of all, we're faith-based, but we're certainly not immune to it. Uh, but the second was to try and understand why is it ours is higher? Um, and part of it, I believe, is our values actually push us to a different level of service, a different level around human dignity, compassion, um, and it almost pushes a level of perfectionism that drives some of this. And so that was an interesting awareness for me. Now I'll give you a little sneak preview in 2019. Um, Medscape showed that we were down about 3%, so about 43% burnout rate across the nation. Unfortunately, in Mercy and Bon Secours, we went up a bit. So we went from the 51 to 55. No difference between affiliated and employed. Uh, Our APCs, uh, their burnout rate was less, a little bit. But a real concern was our residents actually went up from 54% to 61% Mm -hmm. and are higher than our physicians and our APCs. Yeah. And and I can understand that uh, from the residency standpoint, thinking back to my own residency, just uh, some very trying moments there. But you mentioned that primary care was hit particularly hard. Why do you think that is? I mean, in my mind, I would think that, you know, trauma surgery is one that's going to be, you know, stand out just because of the demands that are put on them. Mm-hmm. But why do you think primary care is feeling that more? So I think primary care is getting hit on a couple of fronts. One is they're becoming more and more isolated. Uh, so we don't go to the hospital. We, you know, communicate with our colleagues virtually. We don't call. We don't talk to them. Yep. We don't get the curbside contact con, uh, consults like we used to. I think another part is in primary care, you're held accountable for a lot of things you don't control. So when you look at your quality metrics, some of those are things that you have absolutely no control over. Um, And then the third one is you have more metrics of your performance than ever. So you have a lot of people looking at you. You have a lot of things on your dashboard. You're not wired to be anything less than perfect. So any red dot, or even yellow dot probably drives you crazy. And so how do we step back from that a little bit and help you get more engaged and also balance out those demands? Sure. 
in your presentation, you had put uh, several comments that physicians had put on the, uh, the 2018 survey, and there was one in particular that I thought encapsulated burnout for a lot of physicians well, because the, the overwhelming response, and I'm kind of going through the slides here, as far as what uh, physicians felt caused or contributed most to their burnout was too many bureaucratic tasks at 59%. But uh, this physician said, and I quote, uh, I love caring for patients and direct patient care makes me feel renewed, but the hugely excessive amount of administrative duties outside of direct patient care, paperwork, charting, insurance hassles, meeting all the required checks boxes and documentation, pressures to meet quality markers with varying patient populations, etc., negates the positive of caring for patients. The amount of emotional effort and time it takes for all these tasks outside the typical work hours, including at home, is beyond excess, beyond excessive. Again, I think that that's a burned out physician talking. And I think that's probably something that you hear very commonly. So as someone in your position and as an organization, how do you address that? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question, but a very important question because it really puts it back in the court of what can we do as an organization? And I would offer a, a few things, but let's start with the electronic medical record and the administrative tasks because they go hand in hand. They're the top two that people will pull out and say, here are the problems. And I think as we look at the electronic medical record, number one are the technical elements, the figuring out how to put things in, how to do things, uh, how to manage in basket, how to manage the task. Mm-hmm. But the second part of that is, the EMRs become a great enabler to drop administrative tasks onto you. So now it's very easy for somebody to say, well, we want the quality measure this way, or we want the uh, something documented this way, and you just got these dropped on you. And then the third piece uh, level is really that social interaction that we've lost. But if we go back to each one of those, on the technical piece, we've got to figure out how to decrease the number of inputs that you're getting mm-hmm. that you have to manage and deal with. And I will tell you, the clinically integrated network uh, with Jean Haynes now in charge of that, just talked with her this week. They're working hard at how can we reduce the number of demands that are placed uh, on our frontline uh, providers. When we look at it, the quality team is looking at how do we do the metrics so that they're simple and they really reflect our care. By the way, that quality team uh, that sets those for the medical group, those are physicians from all across the system that are contributing to that. The second is, how do we reduce the amount of content that you're getting? So note bloat becomes a factor Mm -hmm. with that. But if we think of the source of some of the note bloat, it's partly ease and not knowing how to use the tool properly. But part of it is the documentation requirement for billing. So we're engaging the billing folks to say, what are the things that people are doing that make absolutely no sense? Sure. And all they do is add words to a note when you're trying to find something out. The third piece I would offer is, how do we get the team to operate as a team and at top of a license? Mm-hmm. So if we go back to probably what you learned with your team, not only was it being clear with what you needed, but that also gave you a chance to figure out how do we work together as a team effectively? Mm-hmm. I'll give you a quick example. Leadership in medicine this fall, Stacy does a Q&A session. And of course, EMR came up. Stacy countered with, what are the top things that drive you crazy about the electronic medical record? And we had on the board a list of about 10 or 12 items that were generated. What was fascinating to me is after the meeting, at least four people came up to me and said, Herb, I I don't do any of those in my office. Mm -hmm. And what they had done is they worked with their MEs, they worked with their nurses, and as a team, 
they were working everybody top of license. Yeah. And that shifted some of it. Yeah. And um, the term in the books that I've read for that mentality is the Lone Ranger mentality, where I think Mm -hmm. as physicians, and I think some of it is born out of a lot of primary care doctors were in private practice for a long period of time. So they were the boss. They, you know, the buck stopped with them. They were financially responsible for everything. But now, especially in our organization, there's a lot of things that are taken out of our hands, but there's still the mentality of, I need to do everything. I, you know, if, if it doesn't get done by me, it's not getting done correctly. And I think we're underutilizing our team a lot in that sense. You know, that's a great point, Mark. And I actually uh, came across a physician in Virginia who goes around and visits its office and helps kind of do internal consulting. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he brought up to me was he said, Herb, when I sit down with my MAs, I ask them, what am I doing that's making your job hard? And what he learned was some of the things he was doing, he didn't even realize was forcing them to duplicate work or do work in an inefficient manner. When he listened to them, everybody gained because they could redesign that workflow. Yep. No, absolutely. So the other part of the survey that I want to discuss, well, there's several others, but, um, one was how do physicians cope with burnout? And, uh, there was multiple things listed here, some healthy, some unhealthy. I'd want to talk more about the unhealthy. The most commonly cited uh, way that uh, physicians state they cope with it is 48% said that they exercise, 43% say that they talk with uh, family members and close friends, but 41% said that they isolate themselves, um, 23% said that they drink alcohol. And I think when I calculated last night, 26% of the responses as far as how they deal with burnout were more of a chemical way that they dealt with the burnout. So what, what can we do as far as helping physicians to learn, you know, what is healthy versus unhealthy behaviors here? You know, it's interesting. Um, we're used to medicating. That's how we treat mm-hmm. a lot, uh, but it never goes well when we medicate ourselves be it with a legal substance, an illegal substance, prescribed, not prescribed. It just never goes well because we often lose control. Mm-hmm. And I would say there are a couple of things um, with this. This is where, honestly, a life coach can be very helpful because they can identify these things, they can call them out, but they also help you to change the cycle, uh, which is a big part of this. I mean, I can tell you probably here the people who you know, listed drink alcohol or eat junk food, there's not a knowledge deficit. I'm sure they know that this is not healthy for me, but what they need is somebody to walk with them to help to break that cycle Mm -hmm. um, and to really change that. Um, Along that same line, sometimes is how we use our time because what we'll hear is, well, I don't have time for that. And I can appreciate when you're in that burnout mode, the last thing you want is one more demand. But what we've got to look at is how do we create time in a way that we can do the things that are productive and that help us to really counter the burnout. Next thing you had focused on in your presentation was uh, the question, why have you not gotten help? And, and this is one that I think we could even talk uh, you know, all day about, but 50% of the physicians who were burned out said they didn't feel that their symptoms were severe enough. said, I can deal with this without the help of a professional. And then there was a 20% who said they didn't want to risk disclosure. I want to talk about those first two first and then the the third one separately. But, you know, in the physicians who are saying that 
their symptoms are not severe enough yet to get help, um, or they don't feel like they don't need that help from an outside source. How do we focus on that as an organization to show that, you know, you sh- this isn't something you should go at alone? Yeah, I would offer a couple of, of things that may be helpful. You know, we talk about the emotional exhaustion, and I think one of the signs of that are if you get a decent night's rest, you're not on call, and you wake up in the morning and you're still tired, that's a pretty good sign that you're suffering from emotional exhaustion. Mm-hmm. If you find yourself uh, that you're less patient with people, that you're shorter with people, uh, that's a sign. If you find that you're talking about people and patients as objects, that's depersonalization, mm-hmm. that's a sign. If you find yourself saying, you know what, I just need a cup of coffee, or I just need a fill in the blank, and you realize that's not productive, that's a sign. Our challenge as highly educated professionals is we have a very high denial rate. As a matter of fact, it's trained early on that you do not show weakness, you do not show you're tired, you can always give a little bit more. The reality is we can't. And so coming to that and getting past the denial is probably the first step. Um, Also realizing this cycle is a lot easier to break the earlier you jump in. The longer you wait, the harder it is because you've developed those maladaptive behaviors. So I think the first step is how do we get through the denial and and honestly assess ourselves? And and then the next thing that we'll battle is embarrassment uh, because you don't want someone else to maybe know that you're getting help. Um, and so that's... Those are the two steps that help us get through that first, uh, those first two hurdles of I may not need help or my symptoms aren't severe enough. Yeah. And you know, this was in 2018. I think I may have answered that question at the time that I didn't think my symptoms were severe enough. And you had talked about it in the last podcast. And I think that this is something that really struck with me is that you know, we think, well, I just go on vacation or I, I just, I, you know, I just do these. I'm just going to exercise more. But if you keep coming back to that same environment that's leading itself to the burnout, I mean, it's just going to be a cycle that happens over and over again. I think that's where it's really beneficial to work with someone else who can kind of guide you through. All right. How do you make these changes that are a little bit more permanent to try to prevent this from happening again, too? It is. And one of the things we've got to be really cautious about when we look at compassion, what it can lead to is isolation. So you feel that you're all alone, kind of the sense of I'm caring for everybody else who cares for me. That's a dangerous spot to be because what we often do is we isolate ourselves and we withdraw Mm -hmm. as a counter to that. And if anything, that's counterproductive because the treatment for that is really being able to lean in and make more connections, but we got to do it in a way that's healthy. And that's where that Uh, coaching or counseling can be really helpful uh, to learn how to do that. If you read about compassion, what you'll often read are the folks who get the most burned out with it. They're withdrawing, which makes it worse because it leads to more isolation. But what they need to do is be able to lean in, but lean in in a very healthy, productive way. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is something we had talked about on our last podcast as well. But what are the options if someone does get to that point where they're saying, I need to do something, I need help? What are the options that Mercy uh, offers for that? You know, it's great. We have several options now. And um, I would say, let me talk first about the fear element, because the options I'm going to talk about 
would not be reportable to the medical board, your licensure board, and would not be reportable when you renew your privileges. So the first one would be to get counseling, um, and that can be through Life Matters, uh, which is free for you. Um, it's done over the telephone. If you want to do something face-to-face, -face, they have the network that can set you up to do that. But the other key piece is it's available 24-7, so you don't have to miss work to do mm -hmm. it. That's often a, a pushback. The other is you don't have to be seen going to somebody's office. You can do it with somebody and, and have that experience over the phone. By the way, that's available to anybody living within your household. Um, the second one is uh, the personal life coach that you've talked about. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the life coach um, is, again, it's not reportable. Because this is something that you're really trying to establish better uh, life habits. And they will help you to do that. Yeah. Um, those are those are two. The third one is, uh, now this goes into a whole different area, but this is the uh, physician health programs uh, at the state level, which are, are mostly to help folks with addiction, although not exclusively. When we get into those areas, uh, I'm happy to say that Bonds of Core Mercy now has providers in those areas that are in their insurance plan, in their network. So if you're covered by their health insurance, there'll be somebody in that plan that can at least provide some help with the cost. The other part of that is, if you're employed within Bonsacore Mercy Health and you're being treated, you're eligible for short-term benefit plans mm -hmm. uh, as well, which helps to ease, ease some of the barriers uh, for people getting help. Yeah, and I know that you're allowed to use a certain percentage of your CME money uh, that goes towards that. How much are you allowed to use? So you're allowed to use up to 40% of it uh, for the personal life coaching. <clears throat> and um, one of the things I would add is you need to have four sessions with the coach. And the reason for that is so that you develop kind of a cadence and a cycle mm -hmm. of accountability. Yeah. And I want to talk about the life coaches a little bit more because I, again, this, this is something that I felt personally, you know, prior to going through uh, treatment, I had a great misconception about what life coaching was. I thought it was some kind of new age, um, you know, something that wasn't based in a lot of fact. But when I researched the coach, and I'll try to make sure that we get a list of the coaches and some of the information that, that people can, uh, can set. But I think all the coaches that were not physicians were psychologists. Mm -hmm. um, the service I chose was one that is just truly physicians, that they're physician counselors, so, and they're practicing physicians. And my doctor that I speak with, he's an ER doctor who has gotten some special training in helping other physicians to deal with burnout. Um, and it's just that we set up a phone call, you know, once or a month even, you know, when we first started, it was once every couple weeks, but it was not what I was expecting, but it's, it took the stigma out of it real quick when I saw, all right, I'm talking to another physician about this, or I'm talking to somebody who deals with physicians on this issue about this. Yep, absolutely. And, and um, you know, the one option that we have uh, as coaches to choose from is um, uh, Dyke Drummond's Happy uh, That's MD. the one I use, yeah. Yeah, and the other part with that, not only are they practicing physicians, they are certified coaches. Mm -hmm. They're trained in this. It's not somebody who wants to do it, they're trained. But the third thing is, each of them have been through burnout themselves. Mm -hmm. So they, they've been there, done that, lived that, and continue to battle with it. Yeah. And if everybody you know is concerned that they are burned out, there's a great book that um, Dyke Drummond is a family uh, medicine physician by training 
who basically started his own business that focuses on just treating physician burnout. But he has a book called Stop Physician Burnout. Uh, I think it's like $15 on Amazon. You could get through it in half of a week and at least the first part of the book. The first part of the book is what really just focuses on the, the mindset that physicians mm-hmm. have with that. But, you know, if you want a copy, you can borrow mine. Just ask me. Um, but one book that I'd highly recommend uh, by him. So, you know, you'd kind of mentioned it uh, already, but when we were talking about um, why physicians have not gotten help, 20% said, you know, they didn't want to risk disclosure. Besides the state options, are there any other options out there? I mean, how should somebody who's concerned that they are dealing with addiction approach that? Because I, I imagine that's a very daunting task. It really is. And in um, probably better than me telling you this would be uh, get firsthand experience from somebody who has been through addiction uh, as a physician and what their journey was like. Because of the licensure issue, the state physician health programs are really the main option to go through because uh, they're established in a way that they can protect or preserve your license. Uh, anything else uh, can jeopardize your license. Now, here's a significant change that's happened in the last two to five years. The Federation of State Medical Boards uh, put out a policy or position statement that uh, the licensing board should not ask if you've ever been treated for addiction. They should eliminate that question, which is a question that used to be on all of our applications. Mm-hmm. So now the states will ask things like, is there anything that would impair your ability to practice medicine? Mm-hmm. Um, and expressly in Ohio, because I just renewed my license, it says that if you're under treatment with this program, you answer this no. I mean, it doesn't really? just say, what do you do? It says, if this is the case for you, you answer it no and say, no, I've never had a problem, mm-hmm. which is really helpful. And it's beginning to take some of that out, but there's still not the trust there yet. And mm-hmm. and every state's a little different. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned in your presentation, I thought this was really interesting that you, you know, we were talking about the bureaucratic tasks through Epic and all these things. And unfortunately, a lot of that seems to be born out of not necessarily our organization, but from regulations that that we get from Medicare and insurance companies, you had actually talked with somebody at Epic about who was kind of the head of efficiency yeah. for physicians. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was um, a f- kind of a funny thing. I was at the Coalition for uh, Physician Burnouts National Meeting. It's actually where we received our Medicus Integra Award in um, June. I looked at the roster of participants like I often do and found there were two people there from Epic. They were not presenters, but they're there from Epic. And so I set out to try and find them because it's like, I want to talk to these people. Sure. Well, it didn't take long because in the one session, somebody talked about the EMR and how much it contributes to burnout. And of course, one of them was the one that couldn't sit still and sure. needed to respond and reply. Now that that's one of them. So I, I found her and then I found the other person that was there and had lunch with them and said, tell me what you're doing. What was reassuring is Epic has a team fully dedicated to addressing clinician burnout. And what are the things EMR helps with? What, how can they make it different? And what I learned from them, one is uh, optimization. I mean, we use that word usually, but continually learning how to use the upgrades, how to maximize the tool is essential. I mean, it's almost like we do CME every year. We should have an element of that that's using the EMR better every mm-hmm. year. That we just invest those couple hours a year in that. The other thing I found interesting is 
the physician that leads that team, she said she spends almost half of her time in Washington, D.C. And it's about advocating for physicians on the behalf of burnout to let the lawmakers and the regulators know, here's the things you need to take off the plate to make this easier. And, and that's what's compounding it. So there's an advocacy element mm-hmm. uh, to that as well. The third one that I found really interesting is um, we talked about the role of the people who lead the Thrive program, the mm-hmm. credential trainers, yeah. the people who are teaching you. And, and they asked me, they said, um, so would you let them in your doctor's lounge? I said, absolutely not. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, here's the problem. Sometimes they come from a mindset, and it's not intentional, but they come from a mindset that's almost condescending. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here, you just need to do these things. Let me just show you this. Let me teach you this. And they they looked at me and they said, Herb, this is an element of what we're doing in training the Thrive folks is how to have that conversation, that it's not to be demeaning, shaming, Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's to be there to help. Mm -hmm. And they said, we very intentionally are training them on how to help that conversation. So they're very aware of those things that you've experienced. Yeah, and I, I, I had said that I feel like there's almost somebody who needs to, because I think that all the different things that we're asked to do, a lot of them we would look at and in isolation say, well, that's not a bad thing. It's, you know, we need to do the depression screen at this visit. We need to, you know, uh, reconcile the meds. We need to do all this. But when it comes together, you know, all of a sudden it becomes this giant camel where there's all these different things that are, are being asked at one visit. And, you know, is there anybody at a system level who's looking at, you know, the efficiency of the visit and how the EMR fits into that and how we can more or less streamline it, almost like the express lanes where you just kind of click down these boxes rather than, you know, jumping all over the place or getting all these alerts? You know, so I would say at a system level, there are several groups that are very well-intentioned, working very hard, that are now coming together. So uh, one of those, the informatics group and the IT group are very much working together to address this. And actually next month we'll be traveling to Epic to -hmm. meet with our team to look at it. So if we think of, for example, when you think of ConnectCare or CarePath, sometimes you're frustrated with it, but it's not a CarePath or ConnectCare issue. It's a technology issue. Mm -hmm. Your monitor isn't working, your mouse isn't working. We gotta make it just as easy to get that fixed as it is to get something in the medical record. So that's one part of it. Another group is looking at the payers and our payer contracting and our clinically integrated network or our pop health team. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I mentioned Jean Haynes earlier. She's working very hard to pull those together to be very conscious of what we do, that we're not putting more burden and we're trying to take burden off. The third one within the medical group is this practice transformation council uh, that Kevin Hartman leads. And I will tell you, they're very conscientious of the quality metrics and the burden that places of not only what we're doing, but how we're doing it and how much load we're putting on that. And that has physician input from every market uh, in that council. And so those are the areas where we're really trying to coordinate that effort uh, to make it easier and reduce the burden. Yeah, and I also sit on the uh, Patient Accessibility Council, which uh, Dr. Hartman um, is one of the leaders of as well. And I think it was just not this past meeting, but the meeting passed. We focused almost the entire meeting on how do we make physicians more efficient? You know, what, what are those things? What are those things that are holding us back? Because it's beneficial from the organization standpint to have efe- uh, efficient physicians, but 
it also lends itself to this. So, you know, looking at things like scribes, you know, and all these other ways to reduce burdens uh, on there. So I will say that there's work being done uh, on that end too. And that's also kind of a physician led uh, council. So, you know, and, and let's go ahead and we'll just hit the third council because mm-hmm. we've hit the first two and that's the experience of care council. And typically I think we often are locked into, oh, that's just Proskini. That's just measuring me. It's another thing I've got to chase. But I would offer that with uh, Heather Renahan's team, uh, and and there's several folks on that, what they're really looking at is, what are the things that we can do to help us learn how to deliver more compassionate care, hang with me just a minute, and actually renew the physician and the provider at the same time? Because they really can go hand in hand if we learn how to do those together. If we learn just one and we're just driving a metric, Mm -hmm. it's not gonna be helpful. But I think Heather really has a handle on what we can do and what we can learn that will help us not only improve the experience, but also improve our experience and reinforce kind of our happiness as providers. Yeah. So what's new with physician burnout for our, uh, for our organization in general? Well, here's what I would offer. In 2020, we have a whole plate of things that we want to do. And I'd like to walk through them just in the framework of uh, we talk about our four dimensions or our four pillars of burnout. The first is the business operations and quality, and a big part of that's going to be reducing the burden and enhancing the experience of the EMR. That's going to be things like how do we reduce alerts? How do we mm-hmm. reduce uh, some of the things that go into your in-basket? How do we help you use the in-basket more efficiently? Um, another one is enhancing the experience of, for some, it's how do we help them use Dragon better? Uh, for some, it's going to be the Thrive. Um, actually, up until just recently in the Atlantic group, they did not have Thrive. They will. Mm-hmm. They're looking at how do they make the help or support function more accessible and easier for you. So that's that's the EMR work that's happening with informatics and EMR. When we look at the culture side, uh, there's a whole body of work that's going to be looking at how do we improve the responsiveness to our providers and our staff's needs and also to their input. So you remember, that was a question in the um, engagement survey, open and responsive to my input. Well, we've gotten the open part better. We still need to work on the responsive part. And so that's gonna be a part. Another big piece is we wanna look at uh, really a compact and designing a compact, which starts to outline the expectations that we have of each other and actually put it down and say, this is what we're about. We're, the hallmark of being a part of our medical group is, you know, what it may be. We live our values, whatever. And then what are those things about each of us that we need to know and understand and that we commit to? When we look at the learning, uh, leadership in medicine is going to continue. Uh, it's going to grow and it'll be available across the ministry. Um, so we'll be continuing that. Uh, we're going to add a medical leader learning program for our, our medical staff leaders. But another big piece is with Kevin Hartman's help um, and also Kevin Letts, who leads uh, the advanced practice providers, we're building out a medical group peer review process, which is really designed, unlike any peer review you've had before, it's designed to recognize good quality. It's also designed to be a safe place where you can go if you're having trouble with your quality to help get it fixed and get it improved. Um, And then the final is in the resilience. In addition to the Life Matters, we're building a Caring for Colleagues program that'll really deal with support 
by peers or colleagues if you were ever to go through a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing with that is we want to be able to provide some burnout summits uh, in each of our, at least our groups, if not in many of our markets this year or next year. And a key piece that we're doing with that, and, and Greenville helped us to test it and pilot it, we're doing it for the providers and their spouse or significant other. So it's a dinner event or a meal. You come with your spouse, significant other, and we talk about the things that we've just talked about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've kept you here long enough, but I did want to end up um, with one thing that, that you had touched on on the last uh, podcast that, again, kind of going through my journey, I now realize more of what you were saying, that there's nothing more powerful than a physician talking to another physician saying, hey, you know, something's up here. You know, you, you just don't seem like yourself because I was actually approached by two people I trust um, actually before the podcast and I was trying to doctor myself. But, you know, how do we foster, you know, that, that you know, it's okay to talk to another physician about it? Or how do we get the physicians who have gone through burnout and are willing to talk about it to make it open that, hey, you know, I, I can point you in the right direction if you need it. You know, that's a great, that's a great question and a great challenge. I, I would offer a couple of things. First of all, raising your awareness and your sensitivity to it that, hey, this is real. And also there's hope. Uh, so this isn't a hopeless situation. There's things we can do that can make this better. The other I would offer is look at what, you're really called to do. Look at what your passion is. I mean, a perfect example are these podcasts, Mark. I mean, that's that's a huge contribution that you're making uh, to burnout, to learning. Um, that's your calling. For someone else, it may be hospitality. It may be the ability to host some small groups uh, in their home or, or parties. For someone else, it may be that they're able to mentor a new provider coming in. For someone else, it may be they want to participate in the caring for colleagues. But the key thing is, look at what you have to offer and bring it to the table and offer it and use it because it'll be much more satisfying for you as well. The other part is care enough to confront somebody. And by confront, I don't mean in their face. It really means that subtle, gee, you don't seem yourself. Mm-hmm. Golly, I'm concerned, what's going on? A simple question like that, and then provide a safe place for them, I mean, emotionally, that they can share with you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because usually the first time through, we're so wired to say, oh, I'm fine, nothing's going on. I can tell you when the person walks away from that conversation, they're thinking, hmm, that person cares about me. I wonder what they see in me I don't see. Have that again, and, and you'll get to the bottom of it. And the final thing is, as we talked about earlier, we now have resources that can support you when you talk with someone and get them help. Yeah. and. You know, you talked earlier about, you know, kind of there's almost an embarrassment of, you know, kind of feeling that weakness. But I mean, it's over half of the doctors in our organization Mm -hmm. are are suffering with this. And I Mm -hmm. think it's something that we have to feel comfortable saying it's okay because this is affecting more than than just you. I mean, it's affecting the people around you and possibly even your patients, too. So. I think it's something that if we can keep having conversations, hopefully help to reduce that stigma too. Well, Dr. Schumann, like I said, I've kept you here uh, too long. Um, any other thoughts or, or anything else you want to add about burnout? So I would offer that for you that for all of you that took 
that participated in the engagement survey, thanks. I mean, there were uh, 3,253 people that participated. Believe it or not, we got 5,500 comments. And I will tell you, I've gone through every single one of those. Um, I can tell you, Stacy has gone through every single one of those. Mm -hmm. But I wanna pull out one in particular, and again, confidential survey, so I don't know who this is, mm -hmm. anything about it, but it really resonated with me. This is a person, when we talked about the burnout, this person said, I have learned over the years that without making a personal connection with a patient, the joy of medical practice is lost and devoid of meaning. The key to avoiding burnout is to empathize with the patient family and share their emotions. And then this person says, it becomes very interesting. And, and <laughs> that's an understatement, it becomes yeah. very interesting. But it's that whole point of getting ourselves healthy that we can lean back into that patient experience. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you all day about this, but thank you so much um, for doing this. I, I really do think that these conversations are important, and this is important to a lot of doctors out there. I will say that we're hoping to do a couple of uh, other podcasts on burnout in the near future, one with a physician coach, one with another provider um, who has been through burnout, and hopefully another special one that, that I hope we can announce in the future. But Dr. Shum, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And uh, keep up the great work. Great. Thank you.